Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with uh, another re-release uh, from the archives. Uh, this one I'm really excited about. This one was picked for you by Adam himself, and uh, uh, I forgot there are five Mondays in the month of October. So I was thinking we would have four uh, re-releases, but there's there's five weeks, so I don't want to cheat you guys out of uh, out of a week, and so. Um, I reached out to Adam and I said, Adam, what's one of your favorite episodes that we did back in the day that, uh, that I could re-release? And he suggested Dr. Timothy Mackey. And I thought, what a great idea. Uh, Dr. Mackey is one of our favorite guests we had. For those of you who have been listening for a long, long time, uh, when we first started the podcast uh, back in 2016, um, we thought early on, we thought, you know, what what what's a good way to start kick this podcast off and kind of explain what we're about and um, kind of take a different look at, at things from the perspective of, you know, somebody who is asking lots of questions and, and um, and really trying to take ownership over their faith for the first time, maybe um, and, and maybe really digging in um, to the things that they've been taught to believe for, for so many years, but never really thought about. And so we thought, what better way to kick this off than to do a series on the Bible itself, right? And so we had uh, a few guests on, and one of the guests that we had on was this uh, this cool hipster looking professor from <laughs> from out in uh, uh, out in the West Coast, and um, he ended up being one of our favorite guests. We had him back on again in 2018, and it's Dr. Timothy Mackey, and um, somewhere around the same time, maybe shortly after, uh, Dr. Mackey started uh, a podcast as well. And it's one of our favorites to this day, um, called the Bible project where, um, his co-host is a really high end il- illustrator, like, um, uh, animator, not illustrator. And, um, so Dr. Mackey kind of narrates and, uh, his co-host, you know, creates these beautiful, um, animations to go along with it. And they have so you know, they have some Bible, uh, reading plans and things that you can kind of follow along. And it's really cool. You kind of, you know, you kind of have your, your uh, professor who's kind of explaining things as you go um, in context and, and you've got these beautiful um, animations to go along with it. So if you're a visual person, it's, I found it very, very helpful. Very cool. Um, but yeah, call the Bible project, www.thebibleproject.com. Uh, or you can go to his, uh, his website, www.timmackey.com. M-A-C-K-I-E.com and, uh, and check out his work there. But obviously we'll have all that in the show notes, but, uh, incredible, incredible guest. And, uh, we just, we always have fun when we have him on, um, and always feel like we're, we're learning a ton. So Dr. Mackey is the creative writer and, per, and director for the Bible project and an adjunct professor of old Testament at Western seminary, both in Portland, Oregon, uh, he discovered the wonderful world of biblical studies and languages at Multnomah University and Western Seminary and had the privilege of doing a PhD in Hebrew and Jewish studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So, so check it out. Again, one of our favorite episodes we ever did. Always felt like we were just, you know, fortunate students to sit there and learn uh, from, from Dr. Mackey. And he's just got a very, very humble um, way about him um, and the way that he presents this information. Obviously, he's got a wealth of knowledge he brings to the table. So check it out. Uh, next week, uh, I may have preemptively said on the last episode that next week would be our Halloween episode. No, I really mean it. Next week will be our Halloween episode. So 
Uh, so check that one out. That'll be an interesting one for for a lot of you out there. But in the meanwhile, check out www.thedeconstructionist.com. That is our home base, uh, our one-stop shop for all things Deconstructionist podcast. You've got uh, all of our back catalog of episodes that you can stream directly through the site, our, our blog, our web store, um, links to our social media, all that good stuff. So check it out. Uh, also, please subscribe, uh, rate, and review. Uh, and then tell a friend if you think uh, they might benefit from the podcast. It's uh, the easiest way for us to get out there is by word of mouth. So appreciate all the support. Thank you so much. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode if you haven't heard it before. Uh, if you have heard it before, uh, hopefully it's a, a nice refresher for you uh, and you enjoy um, the return of Dr. Mackey. So again, this one's from uh, 2018. This is the second time we had Dr. Mackey on and uh, we revisited um our Bible series. So enjoy this one. And without further ado, Dr. Timothy Mackey. Do you believe in love? Cause I'm alone. Do you believe in hell? Cause I am helpless. This water I am treading is now my. All right. Well, I'm, I'm really excited about this. Dr. Mackey, Dr. Timothy freaking Mackey, as we like to call you, um, our returning, our return, our first guest ever now returning to talk about the Bible and all kinds of other good stuff. Thank you so much for being with us again. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to talk with you guys. So you've got a lot of stuff going on and, uh, you've got multiple different podcasts and projects. Um, you, the Bible project, you know, since the last time we had you on the show is completely taken off. And, um, I also yeah. love your other podcast, exploring my strange Bible. What a great title of yeah. a podcast, first of all. And could you just kind of <laughs> catch us up on like what has happened in yeah. the last two years since we last talked and what do you got going on? Yeah, well, uh, a lot has gone on. It might seem like there's a lot going on. My life's actually more simple now than it ever has been, <laughs> which is really great. Um, so, yeah, right now my full-time gig is the Bible Project. So I'm thinking wow. two years ago when we talked, I was still part-time uh, serving as a pastor at yeah. a local church here in Portland and part-time professor at Western Seminary. That's right. So I had, I had way too many part-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I stepped back from pastoral ministry about a year and a half ago to just focus on Bible Project full-time and then even recently, I've pulled back at my adjunct professor role at Western, at least for a season, to just focus on Bible Project and things going on there. So I've kind of funneled in on Bible Project. But awesome. um, yeah, I, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there are other things that are out there. There's a podcast catalog of all my old sermons. It's and that's kind of what weird. It, that's I don't actually what, like to think about. <laughs> well, I'm going to make you talk like, about it just know, a little bit. I don't bit. know how much I agree or disagree with my past self now. <laughs> You're evolving. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What can you do? We all keep learning. And so I'll often go back. I'll hear something I said a few years ago and be like, oh, well, I, you should say it this way or don't say it like that. Anyway. So, yeah, Bio Project's my main gig. So we're doing uh, videos. Um the studios, um, really, man, awesome team we're working with. We're able to release videos every other week now, which is awesome. That's so great. Um, we're, we moved to a seasonal schedule, so we're releasing videos 10 out of the 12 months of the year. And then John and I, who co-founded the Bio Project, we talk together for hours and hours leading up to every video. And so he 
edits and, and cuts all that together. Actually, we have also another awesome guy, Dan Gummel, who works with us to produce that. And so that's the Bible Project podcast. And uh, so there you go. That's my all my efforts are, go, are going there. Here's what it is: is that I got handed this gift to do what I love with my work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so um, I'm kind of in this season right now where I'm, I'm not reading anything current <laughs> or listening to that much that's current. And I'm just going back to school again, uh, just immersing myself in all things Hebrew Bible and Judaism and New Testament. It's just it's like I'm in grad school again. And it's fun. so anyway, sorry, you asked one question and I just talked for a long time. But that's, that's what we wanted. Enough. That's what we wanted. So, Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. So, so you're going to be, you were part of uh, a series that we did uh, almost, we, we were talking about this before we started recording about two years ago. Um, you uh, were the very first guest we ever had on the podcast long before we knew um, what we were doing. And uh, so we, we had you uh-huh. as, as part of our scripture series. So we had a few uh, different people on to talk about the Bible. Um, and so your background, obviously, um, it, it, you know, is in, um, scripture. And, uh, I believe, uh, we talked about last time, you know, how, how you can, uh, translate the ancient Hebrew and all that good stuff. So, so I think the big question, the easy one to start off with is, is, uh, who wrote the Bible then? <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's wrap that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, man, uh, well, uh, you know, a, a few of the well, first, let's just talk about what it even means to write a book like the Bible. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I mean, it's not the kind of thing that comes into, in, into existence every day, right? Um, this is uh, there's one Hebrew Bible scholar, a guy named David Carr. He calls the, the Hebrew Bible a long-duration text. <laughs> I like that. That's good. So, in other words, out of the ancient world, what has survived? You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the ravages of time. Well, lots of boring stuff like receipts and divorce certificates and like literally this is stuff people dig up. Um, <laughs> but then you have a few of the classic works that come from the ancient world, the Gilgamesh epic or Homer, right? He's the famous, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have the Hebrew Bible and then um, the apostolic continuation of it in the story of Jesus that we call the New Testament. And so it's, it's a kind of literature that was produced in a very different way than literature gets produced these days. Um, and uh, I don't know, we know more about, about it than ever in terms of how these kinds of texts were produced. It's the most interesting thing in the world. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So 
Yeah, so I help help guide me. Like, what do you want me? Yeah, I'll, I know. That was, that was an unfair and question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think I you're making you a point that that's uh, not an easy answer. That's kind of what, yeah, yeah. That's, that's where I wanted you to go. It's, it's, uh, so yeah. we've talked about this on previous episodes about how, you know, the Bible is this massive collection, almost a library uh, of writings mm-hmm. by different people and, and uh, different areas of that country over hundreds and hundreds of years. So, so maybe you could talk a little bit about starting out with, with the Old Testament so yeah. what what went into the creation of the Hebrew Bible? Like, uh, you know, how did they yeah. decide on which books and, and where did these come from? Yeah. Well, um, maybe one way is to think about it from the end, the end result. Um, the end result, there's two metaphors I'm using uh, now that I think are, are helpful for how, how things work. One is like um, a cultivated uh, orchard of different kinds of fruit trees hmm. um, is, is something like what the Hebrew Bible is. Um, what it's not is like when you go to a, a nursery in the city and you have uh, a whole bunch of potted trees and big house plants yeah. that have all been sco- scooted into a section together. Uh-huh. Um, that's not what the books of the Hebrew Bible are. In other words, that metaphor of the, the city nursery is of they're fully packaged individually, and then they just happen to be put all next to each other in a collection. Um, and that's exactly what didn't happen uh, with how this literature came to existence. The orchard is a way better image hmm. of uh, in, in, a, a group of texts that came into existence. Obviously, they're distinct. You know, Esther... Is in the Old Testament is different than Daniel, is different than the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. But the stories uh, and the books all actually had a mutually influential uh, set of relationships with each other. And so um, it's much more like an interconnected grove. It's interconnected on the subterranean level. So what I, what I mean by that is that the form of the books of the Hebrew Bible that we have them are actually a product of... of um, uh, Jewish brilliant literary ninjas is what a friend of mine calls them, <laughs> um, who are inheriting material from way older. So you got we're talking about a thousand year long process here, um, where there's um, there's oral traditions from our great ancestors, like from Abraham and so on, and then you get Moses and he's in the mix and he's doing a, a lot of early literary activity. Then you get a David and a Solomon and all this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is all, and this literature coming out of the story of Israel, and it is about the story of God and Israel. But then when um, the people are exiled to Babylon, um, and, and this is like almost a thousand years into their tribal history, mm. um, uh, there's a group of crazy people in the <laughs> tradition of Moses. They're called prof- prophets or Nevi'im. And these guys are saying, yeah, this is, God, this is God's doing. He's destroying our nation. <laughs> He's allowing Babylon to come dismantle us and haul us off into exile because we haven't fulfilled um, the, the purpose for our existence uh, in the world. And so nobody listens to these guys until the, the, it all hits the fan and they end up in exile in Babylon. And then all of a sudden there's this huge trove of literature that all of a sudden is being poured over and studied and prayerfully read and reread. Um, and it's the, it's the materials that will go into the making of the Hebrew Bible. But the exile was a really key watershed moment in uh, these texts coming together 
Um, and you can just see it everywhere. I mean, the first story in the Bible is about a couple who's in the garden of God and they get exiled from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. <laughs> and, they, and they wish they could go back in. The whole thing is a story of exile and of cycles of exiles. And so the exile to Babylon was the key, key moment. And then um, when the people come back into the land, um, that's when the, the books of the Bible start coming into shape as, as we know them. And that process continued well up until just a couple hundred years before Jesus. And so this is why there's so much, uh, I call it hyperlinking between books in mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible. And that's the, that's the root system connecting it, the orchard of trees. And so you're reading the stories of Daniel, and it's all this patterning and stories, but it's all connected to the stories of Joseph, two guys in the king's court having dreams, and there's all interpretation of dreams. And then you're reading Esther, and it's another couple in a king's court, except it's not dreams this time, it's decrees, and it's all, and they're all quoting each other. So here's my, my last metaphor. It's like a quilt. It's like, your, it's like a quilt, a family quilt mm-hmm. that um, you put together, inheriting quilt pieces from your whole family history, like going back generations. And so the material in the quilt isn't the same date as the final shape of the quilt, are you with me? Yeah. yeah. In other words, the, the, the material in the quilt predates the final form of the quilt, but the final form of the quilt determines how you read and understand everything. And so, um, so anyway, there you go. That's in, in, sh- in short form. The, the most fun thing to do is just dive into the text and just see how it all works. But, you, the, I mean, you've got your mind on Babylon and exile and the hope for new creation starting on page one of Genesis. I mean, the whole quilt is in mind starting in the early. So that's not like a book you read every other day, you know, like you don't go down to the bookstore and pick up a book like that. Um, So uh, I think that's why the Bible presents a challenge. One of the many reasons it presents a challenge is because it's not like any other book that we really come into contact contact with. Mm. Sorry, I told you I could talk for a long time. But no, well, that's great. That's tell, actually tell me what you're hearing and, and what you're thinking. That is exactly what we want. So do not apologize for that. <laughs> number one. So here's the question yeah, that comes to mind as I listen to you then, um, when I put myself in other people's shoes and even, and even me, this is a question that I keep wanting to hear more and more perspective on. So when we talk about yeah. this patchwork and we talk about this orchard and we talk about this process and it's this unfolding and this gathering in this, you know, it's almost like a living organism just kind of happening through space and time and coming together and and taking form. What is holding it all together? What, what is bringing it all together? And, and why are some patches included and others Mm -hmm. and others not? That's, I think that's a really fascinating question for people that really start to get into what am I dealing with here? Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is live, life territory for me. I'm, I'm trying to re- rebuild this from the ground up yet again. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> um, so a, a lot of this has to do with the technology um, with which we meet the Bible. Um, so ever since the third or fourth century after Jesus, mm-hmm. um, the main way that non-Jewish communities are coming into contact with the Bible is in the form of what we call books, mm-hmm. codices, a codex, yeah. right? Single pages, back, front and back with the bound form. So um, that's, a, that's a post-Christian technology. 
Um, some and actually, there are some nerds that debate if codexes predated that a little bit, but they weren't widespread until a couple hundred years into the Jesus movement. Um, and so that's significant because that technology, by its physical nature, implies a bounded set. Yes. Yeah. So what, what we have to try and do is imagine that before that time, when the texts were actually coming into existence, the way people encountered the Bible was in the form of scrolls, independent scrolls, and their unity was a mental construct, that you conceive of them as a unified collection. Because there's no way the whole Hebrew Bible fits on one scroll. No. And there isn't. There just isn't a scroll. So you could get it all on one big Torah scroll, um, you couldn't get all the prophets onto one scroll, but you could get 12 small ones. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so j- just like that's, this isn't just somebody's view. This is a material fact. The Bible existed as a collection of literature whose unity was wholly taking place in the minds of the people who grew up on this literature. So that's significant. Oh, um, and what it seems like is that ancient... Um, Jewish communities didn't conceive of boundaries the same way that we do, having inherited the, um, the, the codex. And, and what I'm not saying is there was no such thing as scripture, where people right. didn't have... Um, I have actually started for this period to use the word scriptures, plural, because mm-hmm. they had a very clear sense of what our sacred texts are. Mm-hmm. But a lot of Jewish literature in this period that became the controversial literature later on about is this in the scriptural collection or is it not mm-hmm. things like the Roman Catholic Apocrypha, right? Um, these teach types of things. So they were, they were, here's what these texts are. We're actually, we're creating a whole series. A Deut- we're calling it the Deuterocanon series oh, cool. <laughs> from awesome. the bio project. Yeah. Oh man, it's the coolest stuff in the world. And so what these works are is they're just works of biblical, ancient biblical theology. Um, and so you get a book like Judas, for example, and it's the story about a, a woman. Her name means Jewish woman. <laughs> huh. And um, she acts and talks like Moses, Gideon, Esther, uh, Jael, and Deborah. She's wow. like all these characters put into one. And then the bad guys that she's up against through prayer and she uses prayer and food as her weapons. It's <laughs> amazing. Uh, is like is these kings of empires. It's it's a whole. It's it's a, the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian empires all in one enemy. Um, and wow. so it's a story that actually is summarizing all of the biblical stories about God's surprising way of raising up unlikely de- deliverers to exalt the poor and the oppressed and to bring down the mighty and so on. And so what's a book like that? It's about the Bible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it, is it, should it be in the orchard? Well, it's certainly an outgrowth of the orchard. Yeah. Like it is, it is self a summary of all these other biblical books. Um, do people conceive of it as having the same status as Genesis? Well, no, actually the way people quote from it, people don't quote from it very much in the ancient period, but it still exists and it's awesome. And it's a part of the tradition. And the apostles and Jesus knew about these other texts in their literary tradition. And they don't seem to have treated them the same way, but they did read them. And they did care about these texts. Hmm. And so I'm trying to find a way to think about this and talk about it to Protestants. 
um, that doesn't like freak people out. Because <laughs> uh, again, our categories are molded by the codex. And so it trains us to think like there's only this is sacred and the rest is like dangerous or heretical. And that's not how the early Christians thought about it. That's clearly not how the apostles thought about it. Yeah. Um, if you're from, if you're, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry, but I'll say one more thing. About <laughs> no, please keep going. This is gold. <laughs> if you just read the New Testament, and it's very clear that um, the apostles are familiar with not just with the Hebrew scriptures, but with the whole of their literary tradition. I mean, Jesus' brother quotes from a book called First Enoch, for goodness sakes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, in, in the small letter of Jude, one page in the New Testament, um, but it's Jesus' brother. And he's, you know, and so some people are like, well, what does that mean? Is it in his Bible? And it's like, well, there was controversy about that text. It doesn't seem uh, like it was accorded the same status as the scriptures, but everybody read it and everybody thought about it because it was doing some serious biblical theology that people wanted to pay attention to. Mm. So we need a new category for even how to talk about what these texts are. The orchard metaphor is helping me, but then people say, but isn't there a fence around the orchard? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Quit quit messing with my metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I'm still finding language to to talk about this that honors the Orthodox Jewish and Christian traditions of sacred scripture, but also meets the historical reality of the the messiness and the flourishing of of all this literature. Mm. Well, you skipped right ahead to one of the questions we were going to ask, which is we, we get a lot of people who, who ask us, you know, like, what about these other books that aren't included in the Bible? You know, sure. you reference Enoch and the Gospel of Judas and the Infant Gospel of Jesus and all these other uh, books that have been found. And so what, you know, why weren't they included? You know, what purpose do they serve? Yeah. You know, and, and, yeah. you, and you know, you hear, you hear responses to that here and there. And a lot of people are like, well, they're just, they were written way too far later to be to yeah. be valid or accurate or, or, or useful or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, I, and so it actually is a bit of a different animal, I think, with post-New uh, Testament mm-hmm. literature. Same thing. I mean, the Jewish-Christian tradition is just a text-heavy religious culture, mm-hmm. uh, which was unique in the ancient world, you know? Like, if you, yeah, if your Roman neighbor is going down to worship Zeus, you know, at the temple, like, they don't go down there and read texts with friends and like talk to ponder what this text means. Like nobody's doing that in the ancient world, but that's what followers of Jesus are doing in their house gatherings. You know, it's just, it's remarkable. It really stood out. So we've always um, been the nerdy bunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all that to say is like the literary production of the Jesus movement just kept turning full stream um, but there is something, there was an awareness that these earliest writings, what we call the New Testament, that they are chronologically the earliest and that they're connected first or second hand to the, the crew that was around Jesus himself. And that does seem to have been really important for that connection to Jesus mm-hmm. and to the apostles. Um, and so that's how the, the Hebrew Bible is different because um, it took place, it was shaped over the course of a millennium. Um, the, the apostles were a crew that were all alive together just for a handful of decades. Mm-hmm. And so once they pass, um, literary production still keeps going, but that closeness to the first generation, I think that is important actually for the authority of the new Testament writings. Uh, some, but there are some people that disagree. 
Man, I've, so I've got a doozy for you here. Right. So, um, you know, this podcast is about um, a place that people can just really just wrestle and doubt and, and question and, and get into these kinds of conversations and have no stigma yeah. or shame attached to it and things like that. And what, we, what John and I have found, especially, it was an assumption, I think, the last time we talked because we had no idea what we were doing. And, and largely still don't, right? But, but but the assumption was, you know, a lot of the um, the shame and, and stigma that comes along with doubting or wrestling or deconstructing, as, as we kind of call it, always ends mm-hmm. up se- coming back to and centering around what do we do with the Bible? Because we are such a mm-hmm. rational, um, tactile people that need something uh, concrete. In, in front of us for our religion often to make sense in America. So when things start to fall apart, first thing that seems to be in distress is the Bible. So that's why we love having guys like you on that do the, the homework and the research and have a deep love and affection for uh, the complexity and mystery of, of this thing. So all of that is an intro to my, my question is the, the, the tough part for people here is we flippantly almost call this thing God's word. We just say it, you know, like, like a catchphrase. Well, the Bible's God's word. And I would just love to hear your thoughts mm. on what, what do we mean when we call the Bible God's word? And have you seen this be problematic? Mm. Um, sure, of course, it's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just go. Riff, riff on that. Yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and, and focus and not say anything stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, the tricky thing is, is that this is an ancient text. It's mm-hmm. precious. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful and precious. Um, and uh, the first three quarters of it, you know, were, the, the, were formative for Jesus himself. And his view of reality and his view of his identity and what he thought he was doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the texts that are connected to his closest followers are all about him mm-hmm. and what happened in his life, death, and resurrection. And so they're a precious gift. Yeah. Um, if not, and, and they are many other things, but they are, they are that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, however, they, are, they come from an ancient culture and were written in ancient languages, which means that um, I can't just assume that my first reading and what occurs to my mind when I encounter this text in translation thousands of years later is what it means. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, the, I think the problem is that, well, one part of one problem um, is that we too quickly um, equate my interpretation with its divine authoritative message. Oh man. Yeah. Um, so there's come, there's some like deep humility and feedback loop, um, that, that, that I think the best of the Jewish and Christian traditions have always been in, in saying, this is a great, beautiful, uh, mystery that we've been handed, mm. which doesn't mean it's impenetrable, but it does mean I always, I, my fundamental posture is humility mm. <laughs> and open-handedness with what I think this is saying. Mm. Uh, because, man, the amount of times I thought I understood something <laughs> in this text or in this tradition and then come to realize it's not even that I was wrong. It's that I just lacked the right framework. I wasn't even asking the right questions. I was asking the wrong questions and not seeing what was right there in front of me. 
just waiting for me to ask the right question. That, mm. I've had that so many times now that I, uh, it just humbles. It just humbles you. So that's my first thought when I think about I want to be quick to affirm, I think, that this text truly is the result of a divine human interaction that happened here and that we, we are truly meeting a, a, a beautiful mind and heart <laughs> that's not just human when we really are in tune with these texts and what they're trying to say. I, I really believe that, and I experience that on a regular basis. Mm. But it's not something that I can like master by just having the right decoder ring of interpretation. Mm. It's something God's people have to humbly strive towards by doing their homework and, and being humble about. So that, that's the first thing that comes into my mind when I hear you talk about um, the Bible says, or the Word of God says, mm. and... I would just humbly suggest we say my current best understanding of what I think Paul <laughs> of what I think Paul is trying to say here, and to anchor it to the human authors that God um, chose to speak through, um, and because the Bible says a lot of things, so <laughs> right. to me it's actually more helpful to say so. What I think Paul is trying to get at here, or Peter, or what uh, for Hebrew Bible most of. After Moses and David, they're mostly anonymous, you know, so just the biblical authors. But mm. anyhow, so that's uh, that's my kind of way of approaching that. Feel free to ask another part of that question if you want. But no, that's no, that's so good. I think you drove right at what um, what I've seen in my years as a pastor and as in my years as a congregant and just, you know, witnessing what I've seen in this podcast. You know, a lot of times when I see people throw around that phrase, you know, but this is the word of God. It's either mm-hmm. stop, stop doing homework, stop asking questions, stop messing with it, just accept it, just, uh-huh. just believe yeah. it. Or it's um, a way of saying, I can't be wrong because mm-hmm. I read it here mm-hmm. and I know what it means. So this is God's mm-hmm. word. It can't, be, it can't be wrong. And it's like, well, yeah. w- wait a second. Self, self-evident is what I've heard. Yeah, it's, yeah. Se- it's self-evident. Self-revealing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I, I mean... Yeah, I think I just and, and maybe it's that I I grew up I became a Christian in my early twenties and also my brain turned on in my early twenties. <laughs> and so You're ahead of uh, me then. You're yeah. ahead of me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I suppose. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I read at first I was like, man, it was the whole world of like philosophy and um culture and um, history and language and biblical studies and theology. I just loved it all. I eventually had to hone. Um, <laughs> but I read enough like postmodern philosophy mm-hmm. to become self-critical of my own certainties. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you don't know anything or no. can't be sure of anything. It's just, it's, I think it's just called humility. And so it seems to me this is the most plausible reading. And I think these are the reasons why. You know, and I, why not just say it that way? <laughs> I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and because that because things will tweak and change. Like I was just saying, when I listen to my past self, even uh, things that I said, it's not that I think I was dead wrong. Well, a couple things I think I I wasn't right, but usually it's like <laughs> eh, well, you just weren't taking this into consideration, or your framework was too small, that kind of thing. And so that's true. True for true for all of us. I mean, my goodness, what? Um, I often think about this in the four accounts of the Gospels, well, specifically Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Think how the disciples 
are portrayed as bumbling idiots (laughs) in the stories who are so slow to grasp the reality that they're encountering, right, in Jesus. And think, this is a good example, where the events recounted in the Gospels are from like the 30s AD. Those quilts with all the pieces put together came into existence decades after that. And they're being spread and passed around by the very people who are being criticized in the text. You know, like you imagine Peter yeah. showing up with Mark in hand and saying, here, listen, you know, I'm mostly an idiot here in this book, uh, <laughs> but take me seriously here in the flesh. That's <laughs> so funny. I love it. And so like, but my point is that built in to the Jesus movement from the beginning is a mode of, we don't really have any clue what's going on here. This is our best way to put language to what we encountered in the person of Jesus. And we're all slowly becoming, waking up to the reality of what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection. Are you with me? It's built into the Gospels itself, this progression of our learning and awareness. And to me, that's really important that that's built into the accounts of Jesus. Isn't it even built into the Old Testament? I just listened to your sermon on Psalm 73 today about doubt. Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. I don't remember what I said. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. Don't but, worry. <laughs> uh, I'll remind you later. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, totally. Oh, yeah, man. Talk about the Hebrew Bible. Oh, sheesh. You have every... The Hebrew Bible is so amazing, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> have a book like Lamentations, a whole book that is anger directed at God. It's anger directed at God for the tragedy of Israel's history. I mean, what is happening? Mm, that's yeah. in that's a part of this, this scriptural collection. Is a whole book venting anger, confusion, and frustration at God. So apparently this is a thing that we're going to experience in our journey with this God, and it's actually built into our tradition to teach us how to do it well. <laughs> oh, man. That's so incredible. Your mic yeah. drop quote from... Just to remind you, and then John's got a question, because I gotta I gotta let you know you're brilliant sometimes, even when you don't remember it. Is you were talking about Psalm seventy three and you said humans' words about doubting to God have become God's words about doubting to humans. Yeah. And then you just yeah, let everybody right. just get their minds blown for a second there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's what I'm saying right now about lamentations. But that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Humans doubting words to God become God's words to doubting people. What a remarkable <laughs> What is this thing? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it is. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tradition that gives you all the tools for both building your faith and for uh, deconstructing it, so that you can rebuild it on the other side of however many exiles that we experience in our seven fourscore and however many years, you know. But yeah, it's remarkable. What a what a what a book. Oh man, I, I want to keep you on this on this line of thinking here. So, one of the things that I, I heard you te- actually right before we uh, interviewed you the first time, Adam sent me this teaching that you had done. Oh yeah, uh, right before you started the Bible Project, and you did this amazing breakdown uh, just of um, Genesis and uh, the 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 account of the creation story, and really just kind of step by step walk people through like. Because, you know, one of the big things that people always uh, criticize the Bible for is, well, you know, they're, they're talking about this firmament and this blue dome and, and, and scientifically it doesn't line up. And you had this really beautiful yeah. way of breaking it down. And, and uh, I just wonder if you give us a little taste of, of that. Oh, yeah. Well, um, 
maybe just a, a quick yeah just a quick note on that yeah i know um that the, the first pages of the bible are still extremely controversial <laughs> in many sectors of western culture yep. i mostly i don't tune in i don't tune into those channels anymore but <laughs> i know that they are you know still controversial um so uh the, the way the way that at least things seem to me now is the problems on either the skeptic side of this is all ancient, like primitive shepherd literature hogwash, you know, (laughs) Um, or that this is um, a divine blueprint for the origins of the universe, you know, direct from dropped out of heaven, something like that. What, What both of those mindsets are doing are taking a modern conception of the construction, our, our mental model for the construction of the universe, and imposing that on this ancient text, or expecting that the way I think about how the universe is put together is, of course, what I'm going to find in this ancient text. Mm, right. And if you just stop and think about it from that angle, that's like the worst form of of international travel you could imagine (laughs) you know what i mean like if you go to any foreign culture and um just like drop like get out of the airport and just expecting everybody to speak your language and talk you know and you're looking for whatever the mcdonald's or the fast food restaurants you know and your tube socks are pulled like way high and you're wearing shorts you're american you know what i mean like yeah when i when i (laughs) totally you know what i'm saying like this we know that's rude but, but I would at least humbly suggest that's exactly what both of those modern mindsets are doing. Mm-hmm. And so, again, what we need to do is humble ourselves and say how um, God chose to reveal himself through ancient Israelite literary ninjas. And so how were Israelites and their neighbors talking about their theology of creation and the way the universe is put together? And when you tune into that conversation, it's just so unbelievable with what's happening in Genesis one and two, for example, um, uh, the three tiered, the three tiered universe. So that's exactly right. So creation begins, but the uncreated state is a watery chaos, a dark watery chaos. Mm. Um, in other words, the first sentence of the Bible, and there's different ways to to parse the grammar of what's going on with, with the first sentence of the Bible. Um, but it's, it's some kind of introductory statement so that the proper action begins in verse two, and the, the, the action begins by telling you the land was a dark, watery wasteland. <laughs> and um, God's going to breathe life and, and speak light into this. And what he does is separate the waters from the waters. And this is very, go to Israel's Egyptian neighbors, go to their Canaanite neighbors, go to their Babylonian neighbors. This is how everybody thought about things, mm-hmm. um, is that we live in a world where there's waters above, and it's not just because the thing's blue up there. It's because, like, water actually comes down from up there. <laughs> There's water up there. <laughs> yeah. It's very intuitive. There's yeah. a bunch of water up there. Uh, but it, it comes down sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. Sometimes we wish it was more. Um, and then we've got this land here. But if you dig a well down very deep, you know, or you just go, you hit these things, you'll see, like, water squirting up from down there, sometimes yeah. bursting up. What's yeah. that about? There's water down there, too. Yep. And so it's a view of the universe is a three-tiered, like where there's waters above and there's waters below, both of which can sometimes threaten us. But not most of, most of the time, it's ordered here on the land where we live. Um, 
And so just that right there, like that's a very intuitive way for people to think about how the world is ordered. That's exactly what's being described for us on page one of the Bible is mm-hmm. like the, the sky dome above the chaotic dark ocean. I mean, you go swim in the ocean for two hours and tell me how that goes. Like yeah. it's terrifying. <laughs> I don't belong there, right. you know? Um, and so we've got, but here we are, we've got, we have the land here and it's wonderful and it's ordered. Well, most of it is right. There's, there's some places that are awesome. Usually places that humans have cultivated right for life. But then there's also, the wilderness out there and that's crazy it's dark and there's creatures making crazy sounds that i've never seen before and that's terrifying out there are you with me this is yeah, the conception yeah. of the of the universe and this is the universe being designed on page one of the bible um so, so an example like that makes perfect sense where once you can you know i'm not gonna i don't expect to hear anything about uh the big bang or quasars, you know, (laughs) dark matter, gravity. It's just like, it's an ancient conception of the world that's the vehicle of profound theological claims about God's character and nature and identity. So that's an example uh, of reading the Bible in its ancient literary historical context. And uh, it's just so illuminating, I think. Mm. I don't know, I I could say more about if I want to what, no, what do you tell me what you're thinking? That's <laughs> terrific. Uh, if you could just touch on a little bit, because one of the other questions uh, in relation to Genesis that always comes up is, why do we have two Genesis accounts of creation? And they're, and they're slightly different. Like, yeah. what? how did that happen? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And why well, did no one seem to be bothered by this? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, are you bothered on your family quilt that there's an orange piece next to a blue piece? I mean, like, does that bother you? Drives me, <laughs> drives me crazy. Contradiction? I want you know? a blue quilt and only blue. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, part of this is just how... Um, how the biblical authors communicate through, um, I mean, the nerdy term is their compositional strategies. So remember, they're not just writing whole cloth. The biblical authors are inheriting, preserving, passing along pre-existing materials. It's a quilt. This is actually a quilt, such a helpful image. And so there are actually multiple creation accounts in the Hebrew Bible. Um, there's two that are juxtaposed, put right next to each other on pages one and two. But turn to Proverbs 8, and you'll find another one um, that even uses the word in the beginning. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, this time it's a female character, Lady Wisdom, that mm. God is mm. co-working with to architect the universe. Mm-hmm. Or go to Psalm 74, where God is um, splitting the head of a monster dragon and um, and cr- creating the, co- the ordered cosmos out of the body parts of the dragon that's my favorite (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so again there's multiple ways that biblical authors talked about how god has created this ordered um coherent world that we exist genesis 1 and 2 obviously are giving being given pride of place at at the beginning and they overlap thematically in many ways they don't agree chronologically my goodness you have a seven day scheme on page one, um, that uh, goes the land, um, then uh, the sky flyers and the water swarmers, <laughs> then the land creatures, and then humans are, are the crown on, on day six. And then you turn to page two, and you're back to wilderness again, except mm-hmm. it's not a watery wilderness, it's a dry land wilderness. Um, and then you get humans first, and then all of the animals, and then another human, 
because the first human needs some serious help. <laughs> True. <laughs> like it's serious help, like not in the help of like English help. Did you know this? That the only other person who's called help in the Bible is the God of Israel. Yeah. <laughs> God's providing salvation for the man. Uh, yeah, he is. On page two of the um, and and so uh, so they're just those two right next to each other, right? The chronological um, disconnect is blatant and explicit. Um, and it's not because the biblical authors didn't know what they were doing. It's because they had a different set of priorities than giving you video camera footage. Each of those different chronologies are giving you different aspects of thinking about the nature of creation and, and of God's purpose. Um, just the same way that a Hubble's uh, space telescope photo, right, of the night sky mm-hmm. um, differs from, you know, Vincent van Gogh has this famous, like, starry night right. yeah. paintings, like the European village, and it's kind of semi-impressionistic. It's all swirly, the stars, and so on. And so those are both representations of the night sky. Mm-hmm. And you don't look at Vincent van Gogh's and say, oh, that's just art, therefore it's not real. No. Like, he'd seen the night sky before. He had a real night sky in his head, and yeah. he's representing the real night sky. Mm-hmm. But he's doing it through a different... Um, and so that is, there's something similar going on where the different creation narratives in the Bible are employing different frameworks, different media, different perspectives to talk about the same reality. And if that's the set of questions you're looking for, then, I, you know, it's, it's as silly as asking, why is there a blue quilt piece next to an orange quilt piece on the quilt? Isn't that a contradiction? You're like, that's not even a question you put to a quilt. What a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> So something I think similar, maybe I think can help us get our minds around a new, new way to think about the stories. So, you know, over the last, you know, half hour or so that we've been talking or however long it's been, as we're talking about this strange collection of literature and books and things and uh, Mm -hmm. over a long time, so many, we've used so many phrases and metaphors, you know, compositional strategies, oral traditions, quilt authors times editing you know we know there was redacting yeah. there's you know there's all of these things yeah. going on and you know to somebody that you know is waking up to some of this stuff they may say oh my goodness that's all very human activity yeah, uh, yeah oral yeah. traditions passing things down how do we know that, we, that, yeah. that it's right how do we know that we got it right you know and, and it, and it yeah. to me it kind of comes down to all of this comes down to the question of the divine yeah. human interrelationship that we're sitting with here and that we're talking about, that we're holding, that we're, we're passing down yeah. on and on. So, you know, what is it about that tension that is yeah. so difficult for us mm. to make peace with? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, it might, it might be that in our intellectual culture in the West, we are actually aren't as post-modern or post-post-modern. <laughs> uh, yeah, because we have this thing about that the most important truths to grasp about reality are things that you can verify mm. empirically. Mm. Um, and But, but you think two seconds about that. That's a highly contested claim. Yeah. <laughs> um, and not just saying that, like, you can't quantify love in a relationship. Um, but the most fundamental questions that we're asking and that these scriptures are addressing is like, what on earth are we doing here mm. on the flying space, space rock? Like, why are we here? And we're like, what, 
and not just where did we come from in terms of like show me the biological lineage but like where ultimately is this all from Mm. and where ultimately is it all going um those aren't things that you you can address in a the only way to talk about them is through the kind of literature that the Bible is the best version of, (laughs) which is literature and poetry and narrative to explore um, the beauty that's in creation and to explore the horror that's within creation and within us. Like, how do you, what's, what's that about? Hmm. Um, So I, I, here's what I have found. And in most classes that I teach in biblical literature now, especially in the narrative books, I, I anticipate beforehand all of the historical like questions that are come firing, you know, oh, yeah. especially from Genesis or something. Yeah. And I just invite people. I just say, like, those are very important conversations to have. We're not going to have one of them in this class about the book of Genesis. <laughs> what we're going to do is just sit down and attend to the book of Genesis on its own terms and try and like create a little inner Israelite, ancient Israelite in our heads mm. and read read it and try and hear it as if I were that ancient Israelite. And what I find is that once we, once people encounter, when I encounter the real sophisticated claims that these narratives and poems are making, the questions just change entirely. Like the historical questions, yeah, they're, they're significant, but they're not nearly as significant as what this text is actually saying about the nature of human you know, the nature of human humans and the human condition and what the problems are. And so that's my current strategy is actually to suspend disbelief or suspend those questions and just in, in, hear these texts as best as we can on their own terms. And it just changes everything, man. I don't know how many times I've come in. I've like been teaching a class in, on Genesis or in the Torah, the Pentateuch. And I've had experience, I have them personally. And then I have students who are just like, I, the Pentateuch was actually, the first five books of the Bible were becoming the main stumbling block to my faith in Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like all the, there's crazy, crazy stuff in there. Crazy, yeah. But once we're able to, to see what they're communicating on their own terms, hmm. it's mind-blowing. It's mind it makes me cry. Oh, it's just so yeah. profound. And I feel like I'm, someone's reading my mail when I read these texts and like I'm encountering another mind, Mm. beautiful mind. (laughs) Mm. And uh, to me, that's my experience of these texts as speaking a divine word, hearing God's word is when uh, I feel like the Bible is actually reading me as much as I'm reading it. And that only happens when we humble ourselves and push pause on our urgent questions and find that I don't think they're so urgent. Maybe after all, yeah. Mm. So, it, so is that sort of the same approach you take? I know a lot of people are like, ah, I can't be Christian because there's so much violence specifically in the Old Testament. And so I always sure. ask myself, yeah. I'm like, is it, is it really God uh, conducting violence or is it mm. man's uh, yeah. interpretation of, of, or trying to make sense of the hardships around them? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a complicated, it's a multifaceted question because, uh, much, if not most of the violence, you're right, is um, just screwed up humans doing terrible things to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they often are humans that God has committed himself to. And so I think that bothers us, that mm-hmm. God would commit himself to 
people like that. Mm. Um, but that is itself part of the message. It's about God marrying himself to humans as he finds them um, so that he can transform them into humans as he knows he's made them to be. However, there is a whole category of material, especially in the Hebrew Bible, um, about divine violence, Mm -hmm. divinely sponsored or initiated violence. Um, But those narratives, there is more than meets the eye there. Absolutely. Mm. Um, And and what what I urge people not to do is um, allow their memory to um, recall those stories for them, but to actually read them slowly and carefully. And you'll find that there's a lot more going on there. And it's hard to summarize because every narrative is doing something a little bit different, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, but maybe, so here's just a cla- the most classic example. Do we have a minute? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah so, go for it. So, so like the, the flood story. So there's two, two things happening with the flood story. One is in ancient Israelite dialoguing with their Babylonian neighbors. Mm. So flood, flood stories are, um, there's a dominant narrative out there about the flood story. Um, just... It, there's like a vi- there's a viral trending Twitter feed happening. <laughs> yeah, right? you mean this j- isn't about, just in the Bible? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, in the ancient in the ancient world, and of course, I mean, um, um, whatever you want to say about hu- human origins, um, there was a huge, important watershed culture happening in the Mesopotamian river deltas agriculture, domestication of all kinds of animals is happening there, like for the first time. And so it's also a region that is catastrophically flooded on a cyclical basis. And so, of course, of course, there's going to be um, narratives about floods that are really ancient and really central to how people see the world and how they would experience it. So here's how the Babylonians told the story. And you can go, like Wikipedia, go down to your bookstore and get it today. It's called the Gilgamesh Epic or, or another version in what's called Atrahasis. And so here's the story. I'll try and summarize it briefly, but it's so fascinating. It's, there's a multi-tiered view of the, of the gods. It's polytheist culture. And so there's like the super high gods, um, Enlil and his consort wife, and then there's like the medium level gods. They're called the Igigi. I like them. Igigi. Uh, and then there's the lower level gods. And they're like the slave gods who do all the work and get all the food for the higher gods. And so these gods, they get uh, fed up with being the servants. And so they propose this plan. Well, actually, they stage the first walkout. It's literally like a protest walkout. <laughs> and, uh, they, and then their pr- proposal is, let's make a new creature that will provide food for all of us and we'll all be a little bit better off. And so what they do is they kidnap one of their own and then they slit the throat of a deity and pour his blood out into the dust and then is molded the first humans. And the humans are molded of the of blood of the gods and the dust of the land and their, ex- their purpose for their existence is to be slaves to the upper tier of gods. Um, but here's the thing is that, um, the humans multiply like rabbits cause they love to have sex. And so, <laughs> like, <laughs> so then, then the gods are re- regretting this decision that they've made cause there's way too many of them multiplying. And so the upper tier gods decide to wipe them all out and descend a flood, a catastrophic flood that will kill them all. Except one of the lower tier gods 
feels bad about this because like, ah, oh, we're responsible for this whole mess. And so they send a messenger to one guy, Utnapishtim, and they tell him to build a boat and to get animals to take on the boat. And then there's a flood that lasts seven days, and then he tests to see if the dry land is dry by sending out birds. And are you with me? Oh, it's just absolutely. Sounds, it's, it sounds familiar, Tim. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but, but also it sounds really unfamiliar, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. So you can see what's happening. So the biblical author is taking a dumb, like a trending Twitter feed. Yep. Here's how my culture talks about it. I believe in Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth. And in Yahweh theology, humans are not slaves to the gods. Hmm. They are kings and queens of creation meant to sit at God's right hand hmm. as his fellow kings and queens. And so that's what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is the enthronement of humanity. Again, divine and human, right? The mm-hmm. breath, not the blood of the gods, but the breath of the gods and the dust. So you can see the biblical authors are taking elements of the dominant cultural narrative, but they're also subverting and critiquing it at the same time. And so in the biblical version of the flood, God isn't fed up with humans multiplying. What you can't believe is that they're spreading Hamas, they're spreading violence and injustice. Hmm. Uh, and corruption. And so what the flood story is, is you take all of, remember the three-tiered universe we talked about in Genesis 1, separates the waters from the waters, and then keeps the waters up there, mm-hmm. and then uh, submerges the waters under the land here. And the flood narrative is God responding to humans unleashing chaos into the world by God releasing the world back to pre-Genesis 1. So the sky dome collapses, and the and right and the water underneath the earth bursts out, and so it, it's a it's a conception that God is the one holding back chaos, mm. and He enthrones humans as kings and queens to rule creation and to help spread order and beauty within it. But when humans release violence and chaos into the world, God gives creation over, so to speak, to our chaos, and creation responds to our chaos with its own form of chaos by killing us too. Wow. Um, and so, dude, tell me, dude, tell me that doesn't have any modern implications. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is so like, good. It's so profound what's happening there. So that changes. Is God the one responsible for the flood? Well, yes. But when you see what's happening, you, God, God's not angry. Actually, in the introduction to the flood story, God's motivation isn't anger. It's grief. He's brokenhearted yeah. that humans have done this to his world, and he's just... As Paul says in Romans 1, he hands creation over mm. to the ruin introduced into it. And so, is there a lot to wrestle with there about God's character? Yes, but it's like it's different. It's a different set of issues than just like, oh, God, it's an ancient, primitive, angry God who hates humans. It's like, no, no, you're substituting the Babylonian version for the biblical version, right. which is exactly opposite of what the authors are trying to do. Mm. Anyway. Maybe that's kind of that's been a helpful example for me recently to think think about the difference about that's divine violence. So helpful. That's really good. And it, I've been reading a ton of um, uh, uh, different rabbis and their perspectives on the on the Hebrew Bible just to get a, a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noticed that you mentioned there um, that I think is fascinating is this idea that. Um, you know, the uh, early Christians and, and the Jewish people were borrowing ideas or mythology uh, from other uh, cultures that, around them and using it almost as a vehicle to communicate some beautiful idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else? Um, though I, I've actually come and I would humbly suggest this, that I think the word borrow um, is, it doesn't quite do the work that we want it to. 
when we because for example, like when I when I talk about like gravity, mm-hmm. I'm not borrowing from modern physics. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, right. I just, it literally it's my it's my conception of the universe. It's the fish tank that I'm in, and so when I speak with language about the world or about how we conceive of things, it's because it's literally my shaping environment. I I got just good, yeah. But if I'm exposed to a counter narrative, now I can employ different language to critique the dominant narrative and begin to see the fishbowl for what it really is, expose it for what it is, which is a human construction. Hmm. And and so I, I think that's a, at least for me, that's a more helpful way to think about the biblical authors. It's not like oh, they just are borrowing Babylonian mythology. It's no, dude. They envisioned the world as a three-tiered world. Yeah, they were using um, the language. They knew. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So they're thinking within the categories that they have at the time. And what else can humans do? You know. Yeah. So they're aware of the category, just like the other cultures around them. That's why they share so so many similarities. But there's almost a new consciousness moving out mm-hmm. from that that becomes like a polemic mm-hmm. to that place yeah. that they're in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the Hebrew Bible tells, it tells, you can believe it or not believe it, but it, it represents um, the history of a people group who encountered something mm. that they could not explain that gave them this new awareness of life and its meaning. Mm. And the thing that they encountered, they they believe that it's a being who revealed himself to them as I am. <laughs> and as my friend likes to put it, um, this family of people stuck their fork in the light socket, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> like they just, something happened to this family of people throughout their history. That's utterly remarkable. That's awesome. And that we're still talking about to this day. Mm. The, like, Believe it or not believe it, you have to provide an explanation for this people group and their existence through the centuries. Mm. Are you, like, what other people group exists intact <laughs> yeah. from that long ago with their traditional literature? Um, much less, um, and you know, if we're using whatever happened in Mount Sinai, we're in the Exodus, I think was a pretty significant fork in the light socket moment. Um, <laughs> And then I, that's the claim that the apostles are making about Jesus. That was another, like, kicked it up to a whole new level. And what you see the apostles doing is using Jewish and now also Greek and Roman categories and language uh, and conceptions of the world to uh, critique and subvert the dominant narratives, the imperial narratives of Greece and Rome. And But they're doing it in light of their radical encounter with Jesus in the spirit. Mm. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, you have to at least just read it on its own terms and let it say what it's saying. Yeah. I love that. That actually reminds me, there's a, there's a great book out there by a guy named Thomas Foster about how to read literature, like a college professor. And he kind of, he kind of makes the same point actually. Uh, Like if you're going to understand anything about American literature, you have to, you have to wrestle with the Bible and everything that it says. You have to. Yeah, yeah. Or you're going to be left out. Yeah. So that's that's a great yeah. kind of reason, yeah. you know, to to be here. But I I have kind of a sub question real quick to the question yeah. that John asked, and you went into all this stuff about Noah. So uh, one of the, this is testimonial to me. I'm not just speaking for listeners here, you know. So pastor, 
deconstructing, really loving all the wrestling and doubting and questioning and, and exploring that's happening. And uh, the Bible project's been wonderful and exploring my strange Bible has been wonderful. There's so many great resources out there for people that find themselves in our kind of place to have these mm-hmm. conversations and not lose our mind and our faith and go crazy and, you know, almost have a new kind of faith and a and new embrace. But here's, here's the question for you, Tim. Oh, oh wise Dr. Mackey. What do I do with my kids? Because, because when I, I want to read the Bible with my kids and I do, and I'm reading stories like, like Noah and I'm like, oh man, how do I tell them about Gilgamesh? And (laughs) you know, like, what do you do? Yeah, totally. Um, that's a great question. I don't know. My, I have two boys, they're five and seven and I am figuring it out. Just okay. Like you. That's so comforting. No, honestly, <laughs> that's, that's so comforting yeah. for me to hear. We both have five year olds yeah. as well. So this is good. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'll, so I'll just tell you my current strategy is, um, mostly just tell stories about Jesus. <sighs> so good, man. In terms of like, if I have a book open that they're associating with the Bible, it's a story about Jesus or something that he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently actually introduced, um, Proverbs. That's good. Um, that's good. a proverb a week. And, and actually, cause there's so many good ones that are like little riddles. Yeah. 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 They're like little word puzzles, you know? And so I find that my kids actually love them cause it's like a little puzzle to, to, and then you talk about it, you know? Um, the one without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. And you're just like, it's so good. Who doesn't want to talk about that? So anyway, Proverbs and stories of Jesus. Um, so good. And what I, what I find is when I, for like bedtime, if I just verbally kind of creatively retell an epic narrative, like the Joseph story of Joseph mm. and his brothers or Saul and David and break it up, you know, just into like a week's long worth of exciting episodes. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of do that sometimes. Um, but it's kind of freestyling. I love you know? that. <laughs> Going back to the oral and, tradition. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but at some point, you know, I do want to, I mean, they see me reading a lot, and so I trust that's making a positive association, too. Like, my dad talks about Jesus a lot. We talk about these cool proverbs at dinner, and he reads that book a lot. That's <laughs> awesome, man. I hope what they also think is he loves me. And so, <laughs> right, like, yeah. it's all, like, one, like, pack, good package deal in their minds. So, so that good. one day when they actually learn how to read, and we actually read these texts together and talk about them, that, that I won't have to unlearn as much yeah thank you i don't know ask me in a decade and i'll ask you i hope we do i hope i get to thank you oh man well i i just have one last question for you then adam's got uh a really great question to 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 end our time together because i know we're running short here but um one of the things that you brought up on our on our first time together that i thought was really interesting but we didn't really get a chance to really get into it too much was you mentioned uh the dead sea scrolls and mm-hmm. I am a huge history nerd, so anytime we make some sort of archaeological discovery, I'm fascinated by it. So, what yeah. what is the importance of something like the you know find like the Dead Sea Scrolls? Um, and for those who aren't familiar with it, what what are they, and why is that type of discovery so important? Oh man, yeah. Well, I, it's actually one of the most well known biblical scholarly kinds of things that ever hit the public awareness. Um, so yeah, this is out, uh, east of Jerusalem, down near the Dead Sea. There's a, a set of caves near a flat plateau cliff 
um, where there was some kind of ancient settlement. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in these caves were found um, ancient pottery jars, which is loads of scrolls in them. And it turns out many of them were scrolls of biblical texts, and then a lot of other literature as well, some of it that had been known previously in this literature that we might call the Apocrypha or Pseudepigrapha. And then there's just other works altogether. Um, that, uh, those works that I mentioned are part of the Grove of Trees that we talked about yes. earlier. The, the large, you know the trees that are a little further out from yeah. center? Yeah, the offshoots, know? the offshoots. They're, <laughs> but, they're, but they're offshoots. So some of those were found there. Enoch, copies of Enoch were found there. Um, but then also all this other literature. And then the consensus theory is that these caves and that literature is connected to the people who lived in the settlement, um, which was a, a whole little network of buildings. So you put, put all the pieces together. The consensus view is this was a, a group of um, disenchanted or even um, secession, secessionist mm -hmm. uh, priests from Jerusalem who withdrew into the desert because they believed that the temple in Jerusalem had become corrupt and compromised um, by its current leadership. Um, and so somewhere in the 100s BC, it's pre-Jesus, they go out to the desert and they form an alternate temple liturgy. They're praying at the same times, of, the same times that the priests are praying in Jerusalem. They have their own liturgy um, and they are offering sacrifices of prayer to replace the corrupt sacrifices in the temple. It's so fascinating. Mm. And so they, um, they took their biblical texts with them. Um, so this revolutionized, this is like finding an ancient library of Bible nerds who, who used to live in Jerusalem. <laughs> our, our kind of people. <laughs> where, where, where the final form of the Hebrew Bible was likely produced. You know what I'm saying? So we're like near ground zero here for the where the quilt came from. Oh, man. And we're surely looking at descendants of people who actually worked on the biblical quilt material, that kind of thing. And so, dude, these guys, their literature they produce, it's so awesome. Imagine a group of people who've never had their brains melted by Twitter or TV. Their only form of media is the biblical literature, Hebrew <laughs> literature. <laughs> and they've grown up from their earliest memories, singing it, hearing it, chanting it, saying it, holidays, mom, with dad, it's written on my doorpost. I mean, it's just like, that's the level. And so they withdrew to the desert to read the Bible, wait for the messianic kingdom of God, and to live out there. Wow. So um, the versions of the biblical text found there are fascinating because we all of a sudden jumped like 500 plus years into the past with access to manuscripts of biblical texts. Mm. And they give us a fascinating picture of the, of the fluid, still forming nature of the text of the Bible. Um, uh, so that's interesting, you know, they give us a window into the final stages of the formation of the Bible. Yeah. But then also what they give us is, is how Jews thought and talked because the way that they write and think is very similar to a lot of what we see in the new Testament. And so, um, the gap between the Hebrew Bible and the new Testament, all of a sudden just got like filled in. There's like almost a continuous line now of what we know about Judaism and it helps us correct lots of misunderstandings about Jesus and Paul that have floated around for a long time. So there was almost no topic in biblical studies that wasn't revolutionized by the discovery of, of the scrolls. Man. That was not a short answer. Wow. No, <laughs> that's great. No, but it could have been yeah. much longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is true. No, no, yeah, that, was, true. that was that so was great. Read them. 
a great uh, there's a penguin you know penguin mm-hmm. classics yeah cheap paperback there's called there's a penguin classics versions of the most important Dead Sea Scrolls and just go buy it five ninety nine online and you just it's the coolest stuff in the world oh, I'll be doing should, that tonight <laughs> maybe we'll make that our, our book club our Ooh, book club feature that's a good one for yeah. the for the month yeah okay last question Tim Doctor Freaking Mackey so <laughs> listen I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> you're our people you're our people yeah, all right so i don't want to put words in your mouth but it, it as we're listening to this it seems to me and and even listening to you know a lot of the bible project and this is my my kind of take on things when we're looking at the scripture and this whole story and, and the the patchwork you know coming together and and moving from one period to another and awareness growing of uh this this god they're encountering this 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 socket that they've stuck a fork into, you know, this, this ongoing progressive kind of understanding. Would you, would you, are you comfortable saying that is the Bible a progressive revelation, you know, a progressive unfolding that's got a trajectory that's headed. Um, is that, um, yeah, I, I'd, at least at this moment here is maybe how I'd frame that. I'd yeah. say it, it um, be, because it's a quilt, Mm-hmm. Because the Hebrew Bible is a quilt, mm-hmm. uh, whose final shape all comes from one kind of final compositional stamp. Yeah. Um, in that sense, there isn't progression because the end is in view from page one. Oh, okay. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, yeah. In other words, so um, that, that's why for me, an example, Genesis 3.15 talking about a future seed, a descendant who's going to crush the head of the snake, but mm-hmm. also be bitten by the snake that, that got lured humans into this whole mess. So some people to be like, ah, see, it's an ancient primitive prophecy. But no, think of the people who framed the quilt, which is the final literary context of the whole Hebrew Bible collection. They've got their eyes on that, as well as all the stuff in Isaiah and the book of Daniel. And for them, it's all one simultaneously coordinated library of hyperlinked material. Um, it's, like yeah. a, it's like a set of Wikipedia pages. Mm. So in terms of what the Hebrew Bible's communicating, I think it's, it's a statement. Mm. It is itself a hugely complex but coherent statement um, and claim, the set of theological claims. But the actual events that it's representing mm-hmm. do represent a long history of people who are undergoing experiences and this progression that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But um, to me, it's important to separate that from the theological statement being made by, by the, the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. And I guess for me, that's significant because when Jesus tells his followers you guys, why didn't you read the Hebrew Bible? Mm-hmm. Didn't you read the Hebrew Bible and get it? Yeah. Like, you know, and I think he really means that. I think he does too. Yeah. And not just like, if you just read it now with the secret Jesus decoder ring, then you could make sense of it. There were Jews before Jesus waiting for a human fully unified with the God of Israel to come rule the world on God's behalf and to suffer on his behalf. Hmm. Like that's what the Hebrew Bible is about. Humans ruling the world beside God, but now having to account and deal and overcome all of the evil and violence that we've caused in the world. And so Jesus really sees himself as the fulfillment of a thing that the Hebrew Bible is about. So to me, that's what's important. That's why I'm responding to what you're saying in in this way. 
In terms of what actually happened in the history mm-hmm. represented by the Hebrew Bible, of course, there's a progression there. But um, that progression is not, I don't think, what God wants to communicate. Like, what he wants to communicate is, I think, what he guided these people to frame in the Hebrew Bible. And then what Jesus said, yeah, that's me. I'm that. I'm that. <laughs> the thing that that's talking about is the thing that I am. And then, boom, the story like goes into the next phase. Um, so that's my current way of framing it. I, 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 don't, I like did that. Did I interrupt you? No, not, no, not, <laughs> not at all. No, yeah. I, it was, it Maybe was kind John, of, a, I know we're trying to close. I know we're trying to close down. Yeah. Totally I, trying to close like, down. Follow up of like what's motivating that question. On your, yeah. On no, your I'm end. glad you asked what's motivating the question because one of the things, the difficulties that I've had in, in kind of trying to figure out what to do with this book now, kind of a, where do we go from here? kind of deal. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like mm-hmm. when you read the Bible that there is this sort of like people are starting to get things and ethically and politically um, and even socially yeah. are moving in a direction kind of with uh, a realization of what it means to be human and, and divine. Um, what it means to have that. I don't even know if I'm comfortable yeah. with the phrase Christ consciousness or, you know, whatever, but um, yeah, yeah. is it still... Yeah, new creation. That perfect, perfect phrase. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah. exactly what I was looking for. Um, is that still moving us forward, mm. or mm-hmm. Is, mm-hmm. is there is there a progression yeah. now, kind of coming yeah. out of it? Well, yeah. Well, I, I think this is where I think this is where Jesus and the apostles pointed towards, in their different ways, the role of the Spirit to mediate mm. um, the loving covenant relationship between the father and the son to all future generations so that what was shared between them as that eternal community of love is something that people are invited into mm. right this john i and them and you and me and i and you and all yes, this, this yes, kind yes, of thing yes, you know, it's yes, that thing yes and so it's call it eternal life call it new creation but it's it's something that that the new humanity is invited to participate in. Mm. And when we do that, it just, the whole, everything changes and how you see human relationships changes. And so I think that's the kind of thing that we can see with hindsight and really amazing moments um, where followers of Jesus have been able to be a part of new creation breaking into the world. Um, mm. And what some people will label as those moments, other people won't label as those moments, right? Yeah, yeah very true. So like ones that, that, that sell like popularly now are like op, you know, abolition of slavery or something. That's, you're hard-pressed to find somebody to say that was a net loss for the human race. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but of course, in the moment, it was extremely controversial whether that was an inbreaking of new creation by the work of the Spirit, right? Yes. And so... I think that happens in every generation hmm. and there's no book written about it. That's, you know what I'm saying? You, like, got, you got exactly where I was trying to go with this. Yes. It's, it's the work of the spirit. And so I'm not just saying it's a free for all. I think it's the, it's the burden of every generation to hmm. discern how the work of the spirit is in continuity with everything, right. That hmm. God's been up to mm-hmm. yeah. and that it fits within, right. Mm-hmm. It fits in the growth. Yep. Orchard. Yep. 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 <laughs> we, we can, um, and, but there's going to be a lot of responsibility that we have to discern how and when something is new creation and when it's half just our creation and half 
new creation. So uh, there you go. Now let's I'm do it. My let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Thank you so but much. That's the challenge. Oh man, that's the challenge, isn't it? Yeah. So well, it's you're having fun and yeah. you're helping people have fun doing it, <laughs> and we we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I count it the greatest privilege that I get to spend my my days doing this. And um, that, like uh, talking with you about these things, is, is something that we can we can do. What a remarkable world we live in! Yeah, uh, so fun. So n- normally, yeah. normally before we before we say goodbye, we always uh, ask the guests to tell us where to find their their latest work. And of course, we'll put all of that stuff in the show notes. But I would much rather ask you, uh, since we have you on, uh, what are some good resources uh, for folks out there who are really struggling with uh, reading scripture and, and really having a hard time? Mm-hmm absorbing it what are some of your favorite resources besides obviously well, your podcast so which i would yeah recommend um, yeah sure yeah so yeah we have these yeah the resources we're putting out there through the through the bible project um you know i don't i'm a bookworm and so like naturally i have my mind just like to recommend books to people yeah. please do yes <laughs> us too but i know that's not how everybody processes the world um but for those who are book oriented, um, the works of uh, a New Testament and uh, Jewish study scholar named Tom Wright or N.T. Wright. Oh yeah, yep. Uh, seriously, just pick one. He's yeah. written <laughs> so many books, um, but he has, you know, he has a, a, a series of books that have black and white covers, mm-hmm. and then he has a series of books that are just huge and fat. I like yes. them both. I like them both. <laughs> yeah, I've read yeah, them all. Yeah. Love them both. Yeah, he has a way of inviting people into a serious um, conversation about faith and history and biblical studies and bi- bi- scriptural texts in a way that I find ima- just spurs my imagination. Yes. It's not boring, and it'll change the way you see everything forever. And then what I just recommend is follow his footnotes. Yes. Read yep. N.T. Wright and follow his footnotes. So and, good. Um, and you, that'll at least take you a few years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, by, and by then I'll, I'll be on again and I can give you the next <laughs> And let me just, let me just say it. as an interviewer's note, both you and he, cause we've interviewed both of you get yeah. just as giddy and excited when you talk about this stuff. Ah, and it's yeah, infectious. It is infectious yeah, and we love it. And that's yeah, why we yeah. love having you guys on. Actually, here, all right, let me, let me recommend one other author cause he's sure. a Hebrew Bible guys. J. Richard Middleton. Have you reached out to him? You should interview him. Oh, J. No. Richard Middleton. No, we need he to did. though. He has a book. He has a book on the image of God. Called, it's about the image of God in its ancient context yeah. called The Liberating Image. And then he has a book called The New Heavens and the New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. Did you get all that, John? Dude. I'm all about it. And he grew up in the Caribbean, so he's, he's a Caucasian with a Jamaican accent. What? You must interview him. Done. Wow. <laughs> we're name dropping you. We, we're going to yes. say reaching out to yeah, Richard deal. Middleton. I've never met him, but his books have had a huge influence on me. Oh. Read his books. They're so helpful. So, so cool. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, you're welcome. Man, this was a blast. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm yeah. sure you've got a lot of stuff to do. You've got multiple <laughs> podcasts to put out and material to create and family to love and a city to dig into. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome, guys. That was a really good conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Sounds good. money so that you would tell me what to think 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.